Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Hi, everyone, and welcome to Claim Your Confidence. This is Lydia Finette, and I'm joining you on a beautiful but chilly day here in Rockefeller Center. I think we finally started winter in New York City, and no one is less happy about it than me. As you guys know, I love the warm weather, but I have a bright, warm smile sitting across from me today, and I am so excited to introduce you to Gretchen Witt, the founder of Cookies for Kids Cancer. You know, I really think there's something to be said about ordinary people who do extraordinary things with their life. And we are going to dig into Gretchen's story about how Cookies for Kids Cancer started and hear a lot more from her after a word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette. I am so excited to introduce you to a friend of mine who I am so happy to call a friend, but more importantly, she is the founder of Cookies for Kids Cancer, an organization that has raised over $20 million for pediatric cancer research. There's a long story that goes into this. So Gretchen, thank you so much for being here with us today. I am so excited. We have like four hours, right? I know, exactly. <laughs> Everybody buckle up. Yep, this is yep. going to be a four-hour conversation. It's more going to be like just a conversation, less of an interview. But I'm so happy to be here with you today. And I want to tell everybody how we got to know one another. I mean, as many of you know who are tuning in, I'm an auctioneer. I specialize in nonprofit auctioneering. And I don't even know if it was eight or nine years ago, maybe, if it was that long ago, but I walked in to take an organization called Cookies for Kids Cancer and met this force of a woman who is now seated across from me and have had such an exceptional time getting to know her, but more importantly, getting to understand how Cookies for Kids Cancer came to be. There's so many lessons in confidence here. So I want to start at the beginning, Gretchen. You're a force now, but is that always who you've been? Oh, gosh. Number one, thank you <laughs> for allowing me to be here and share the story. And it was nine years ago. It was February of 2014 when you walked into that room. And for me, it was a whole new chapter of our organization because we hadn't done large events until then. And we really kind of flipped the model on how nonprofits typically work, which is typically you have a large event and that money filters out to the rest of the country. And that's how it works. But we grew from the bottom up, grassroots up, which is slightly different. But in terms of having confidence, I, you know, I don't think I have confidence, but I'm more of a, well, what the heck? Let's at least try it. I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen? You fail at trying to do something good and something to better the world, what's going to happen? People are going to get mad at you. So I don't know if I would term it as confidence, but it's for me personally, it's more of a, well, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. Like, why not at least try it? Yeah, absolutely. Because then you'll always have that question. Like, well, if, if only I had done... Coulda, shoulda, woulda. Yeah. It's yeah. my favorite phrase about yeah. people. Yeah. Looking, looking around the corner like, I could have done that. I should have done that. Yeah. You can do that. Yeah. Why not try it? Yeah. yeah. And you are a perfect example of that. So where did you grow up? So I grew up in a little town called Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which is actually not too far from here. And from just a super young age, my mom 
loved bringing me to the city and my most vivid memories of a kid were either backpacking and hiking with my dad or being in the city with my mom. And I just loved the city and I loved everything about it. And I loved the energy and I loved, I just, I loved it all. So it's not surprising to me that I do so much of the work that I do here in this area. But I grew up in Bethlehem, pretty normal upbringing. I was an athlete growing up. I was a big cyclist and cycling is really big in the area where I grew up. And I rode on something called a velodrome, which if none of your listeners have ever heard what a velodrome (laughs) is. I'll include myself in that listener pool. Go look it up. It's fascinating. It's a banked cement track and you race around it and it's a little crazy. Did you do that competitively? Yeah. And that's something that people do. All over the country. All over the country. Yeah. It's an Olympic sport. Maybe I have seen this, but I don't think that I knew that that was the name. Oh, yeah. Now that you're saying that. So it's called track cycling. Okay. Anyway, but I do think that, and the only reason I mention it is because when you're an athlete, you have to, you really learn how to just like grit through it and to like buckle up and and you got to put in the work and you have to put in the training and it takes a lot of determination and like grit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's so many lessons learned about life in terms of the ability to not win all the time and still have to be gracious about it and continue to lose over the course of your life, whether or not you want to. Right. 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 Which I think is a life lesson that we can all learn from and also builds resilience over time. Yeah, totally. Totally. So you left Pennsylvania to go to college? Yep. I went to a woman's college in Raleigh, North Carolina, named Meredith College, because there's a good song playing on the radio when I was touring the dorms and the sun was shining through the window at exactly the right angle to make it feel really homey. And I was like, oh, okay, this looks like a good place to go. This is where I should be. (laughs) A nice dorm room. But it really, it was really fascinating for me because I was from Pennsylvania. I'm very Northeastern. And then all of a sudden I was in this very Southern situation, but I loved it. I loved every second of it. I thought it was just like, it was almost like being, I mean, being in a foreign culture and learning, just learning this other side of things. And that's actually something that I feel really strongly about is that we all should experience everything that this amazing country has to offer, all areas of it. And I think that if we, you know, if we all did that, we would understand how blessed we are to be in a country like this. So I went to school in Raleigh, North Carolina, loved it. But then straight back to New York? No, actually, I I mean, there was a couple of, I I was back in New York. My first job was something I found in the job section of the New York Times when the New York Times used to post jobs. That was a newspaper for those of you (laughs) under the age of 30. There was a newspaper where they would actually open it and there was a thing that's a job posting. Yes. (laughs) So I took my first job in New York and just fell in love with it and thought it was so cool. And then after a couple of years, Years here. And my first job was actually working for a very large PR firm in the crisis communications department, which was like baptism by fire and learned so much from that and learned that saying, I don't know the answer is an answer, mm-hmm. but not giving an answer is not the right thing to do. But it was such an amazing experience. It was 
So cool. So I didn't even realize that crisis PR was a thing until probably a decade ago. And oh, I remember yeah. someone saying that. And I tell everybody what crisis PR is, because I do think it's such an interesting career and job that very few people know exists. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it was intense. It was really intense. And I was working with the man who was a big part of, this is something now we're going way back. But at one point in time, Tylenol had a tampering issue where there was poison in Tylenol. And there were several people who actually died because of it. And so he was one of the people who worked on that whole crisis PR plan. So basically, it's when a entity, a business, a person, a something has some kind of crisis that is going on and a crisis PR team comes in and sets up and helps to manage the communication process. And it's fascinating. And it taught me so much because it really taught me the importance of communication and the importance of even when you don't have something to say, you need to say something, including I don't have the answer. Yeah. Um, And probably the importance of messaging too and uh, how to craft a message and what to say at the right time. And how to think fast. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was great. It was an amazing first job, and I tell people that my my boss, a guy named Ray O'Rourke, um, was the hardest boss in the universe. He was so hard. He was the kind of guy who would say, "I need this," and I would look at him like at twenty two and be like, um, "Okay, <laughs> how, how do how do I do that?" He's like, "I don't care. You go figure it yeah, out. Figure it out." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like one of those bosses, yeah. which at the time I didn't really understand, but now I'm like, "Oh my gosh, that was the best training ever!" It, like there was one time he had to get to Atlanta and and trying to get him to Atlanta when he had absolutely nothing with him, and I, I was just like it was crazy, crazy times, but it was fascinating. So and probably built a lot of confidence too in yourself when you realize that how's he going to get to Atlanta? I can figure yeah, it out. Yeah, yeah, I can do it. I can figure this out. Um, yeah, so it was it was a lot of fun. So that was my entree into the PR world. And then I moved into another section that, that I've had this really weird career path where I always worked with some kind of a client that would have something to do with the food industry, whether it was a food product like Eskimo pie mm-hmm. or whether it was something that had to do with cooking like GE appliances or like OXO Good Grips. And so I had this, I was always kind of in that food world. And it was because of that, that I met a lot of chefs and a lot of restaurateurs. And that's like this whole other niche of communications that you can go into. And that really becomes a huge part of your life as we learn. It did, yeah. yeah. When did you meet your husband? It's over 20 years. So do you count numbers when it's over 20 years? <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I think it, I think you do. I think that's when you really start counting that you've made it 20 years and you keep going. <laughs> it's 20. Okay. <laughs> so it's something in the 20s. But you met your husband and you had two children. Met my husband, had two children. I was an older mom because I loved my job so much. I absolutely loved my job. And so I had my son at 36 and my daughter at 38 and they were 20 months apart. And I had a son and a daughter and I was done. And, you know, like life is beautiful. And, you know, I had my first child obviously is a boy. And so the boy is going to take care of the girl. And, you know, it's a picture perfect Life. Story. Yeah. 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 And then it isn't. Yeah. And then it isn't. And so that was 
Liam, your first son, mm-hmm. is two and a half. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about Liam. Sure. So Liam, well, first of all, if he was here right now, he would be asking you a million questions <laughs> because that was Liam to a T was just the the question guy. So when Liam was two and a half, I started noticing a few things about him. Like he was a slightly picky eater. His nap schedule kept changing, like just like little things, but nothing that was adding up to a smoking gun type of situation. It's like and a mother's intuition. Yeah. Like I, I was like, huh, like it, it shouldn't be this much of a struggle to get him to eat ice cream. Yeah. Like when, when ice cream is a problem, you know, there's a problem. Yeah. So I took him to a well visit and the pediatrician handed me three prescriptions and he kind of slid him across the desk and he said, here's a prescription for a chest x-ray, an abdominal ultrasound and a CBC complete blood count, blood test. I was like, okay, well, how quickly should I get these done? He said, soon, but like, you know, like soon, but yeah. not right now. And there was just something instinctively that made me say, I'm going to do this right now. And I drove from the pediatrician's office to the hospital where he was born, which is actually a hospital named St. Barnabas in New Jersey, Livingston, New Jersey. And Walked into where you have outpatient testing done. It was like four o'clock in the afternoon. Walked in, handed the three prescriptions to a woman who didn't even look up at me. I just kind of slid the prescriptions to her. And without even looking at me, she said, well, you can get one of these done, but these other two, they're going to take a couple of weeks to get scheduled. And she looked up at me as she was saying that and our eyes locked. And I said, I don't think I should wait. And there was something that just happened and she grabbed my hand and she said, you know what? We're going to figure this out. We're going to get him done today. Wow. It might be late, but we're going to get him done. So that's what started this odyssey where first he had the blood draw to see what was going on with his blood, the chest x-ray, and then the ultrasound. And, you know, I, I had two children. You know what it's like when you're pregnant and they're, they're doing that ultrasound and they're clicking and they're taking measurements. And yeah. I was like there's something that's off. Yeah. And I just, I knew that there was something that wasn't right, but I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know how to read an ultrasound at the time. And then I was led into this dark room because I know it's nighttime. Yeah. And it's the room where all of the radiologists look at the scans. And so all that was in the room were these glowing monitors, but there was nobody in there. And it was almost out of like a movie where somebody handed me a phone and it was red And at the other end of the line was my son's pediatrician. And he said, Gretchen, Liam has a very large abdominal tumor. It's about 18 centimeters. We don't know what it is, but we're going to admit you tonight and we're going to get to the bottom of this. And I just like at that point, I, I, I knew that. I was never going to go back to the life that I had before, Yeah, but I didn't know the extent of it. And then one thing led to another. And within 24 hours, we were in an ambulance being transported to actually Memorial Sloan Kettering because they specialize in this kind of cancer that he had. And I remember distinctly as if it was yesterday, thinking to myself that my entire life had been a dress rehearsal for that moment and that whatever I had learned in my 38 years, Mm. 
until now I would lean on and use and lean into and not only help me get through this, but also do whatever I could to help the cause because I had no idea that cancer is the number one disease killer of kids in the U.S. I had no idea that the kinds of cancers kids get are totally different Mm. than the kinds of cancers that adults get. I had no idea that it gets so little funding from the National Cancer Institute. I had no idea that it also gets so little funding from the private sector. And I understand the whys behind it, Mm. but I always come back to, it's the number one disease killer of kids in the U.S. under the age of 18. And if you don't let people know that message, then how can they know to get involved to help make it better? Yeah. And it's interesting. I remember one of our first conversations when I started working with you at Cookies for Kids Cancer that you said to me, one of the biggest issues that people run into is that people don't want to think about it. Oh, yeah. Because the thought of a child getting sick is a parent's worst nightmare. It's Pandora's box. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. It, like, you put yourself in that situation and all of a sudden all you want to do is run away. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even want to think about it. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, like you don't. I, and then there's the whole cancer thing. I mean, cancer, yeah. when you hear that word as an adult, it is super scary. Yeah. But to then think about it with a child, it's like the unthinkable. Yeah. And yeah, you know, like if I just keep Pandora's box closed and pretend la 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 doesn't exist, then I don't have to think about it. But, you know, like my thing is, look, if we don't address it, if we don't think about it, then how can you make it better? If you don't know what the problem is, how can you tackle it? And you also can't get funding if you're not talking about it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So he was diagnosed ultimately with stage four cancer. Is that correct? He was, yeah, stage four. And his kind of cancer is a kind called neuroblastoma. Mm -hmm. And, And a lot of times I don't even talk about that because in a way, it's not important what kind of cancer he had Mm -hmm. because all pediatric cancers get the short end of the funding stick. Mm -hmm. And the kinds of cancers that kids get, like there's rhabdomyosarcoma, osteosarcoma, there's DIPG, there's things that you've never heard of that I had never heard of because only kids get them. So yeah, he had stage four cancer. So I had a two and a half year old with stage four cancer. I had a 13 month old who desperately needed me and the rug got pulled out from the universe. And initially I thought, oh, like this is a six month thing. And then my life will resume. And that wound up being a four year journey. Yeah. So at the beginning, he went into remission. Is that correct? It's interesting. It's never called remission. It's called NED, Mm. N-E-D. It either means that you can detect it or you can't. So it's no evidence of disease. So he went through the initial treatment, which is, oh my gosh, Lydia, it's the most grueling thing that you can possibly imagine. Like Mm -hmm. one of his surgeries was 12 hours. How do you operate on a child that- 12 hours. Yeah, for 12 hours. It just, it, blew my mind. And yeah. and it literally felt like living in a parallel universe yeah. where I had such a hard time understanding that this world exists when literally steps away, I could look out of the hospital windows and be like, there's that other world. Yeah. And I'm now not part of that world anymore. Yeah, He wound up becoming cancer-free, mm-hmm. having no evidence of disease. And I was so grateful. And he was the golden child throughout treatment. Like he never had a delay, never had an infection that was a scary one, never like all of the things, all of the roadblocks and 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 things that can go wrong never happened to him. He was, we thought 
oh, he's going to be fine. Our golden child, who is the cutest thing ever, is going to be fine. And so when he was at a period of being cancer-free, I was so grateful and I wanted to give back and I wanted to help other kids who I knew were not seeing the same success as we were. And I knew that there was this treatment that was in development. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to have a one-time fundraiser Mm -hmm. where I'm going to help to raise some money for this treatment and do whatever I can to also help raise awareness, like pull out some of those tricks from my communication tools Mm -hmm. that I've learned over the years. And so the holidays were coming up. It was October. I had just dropped Liam off at preschool. I was so grateful that he was doing something so mundane as going to preschool. Yeah, I'm sure. I I mean, it's just like I would literally skip down the street. Like, oh, we're going to preschool. (laughs) This is awesome. In you go. Yes. (laughs) And it was just, it was wonderful. And I would stand at the door every day when I dropped him off, just crying. Like, you know, he's here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just so grateful. So, I'm sitting on the steps of his preschool and thinking about like, what can I do? What can I do? And I, like you, am not a runner. I have no desire to run the New York City Marathon and it, nor did I have time. Mm-hmm. Like I needed to do something now. I didn't want to climb Mount Everest. And not that I don't want to, I think it'd actually be fascinating, but I didn't want to be away from my children. Yes. And I, you know, I, I, so I was just like, what can I do? What can I do? A car wash in New York City is yeah. not a good idea. You know, typically people wave you away, <laughs> you know, and I just couldn't think of what to do. But I had just read a story that talked about doing what you know and doing what you love. And I knew a lot of chefs mm-hmm. and I did a lot with food and it, to me, it always feels like the holidays are the time of year when people are scrambling to find the perfect gift that will have meaning, yes. that they feel good about giving their money towards, but the recipient also feels good about receiving. So I'm like doing all this calculation in my brain. And I was like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to bake cookies. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have a massive cookie bake-a-thon and we're going to offer these cookies up for a donation and this is going to be it. Okay. So how many cookies? So I'm sitting on the steps and I'm thinking about like how many cookies. And at the time I knew about 80 families who had children going through treatment. Mm -hmm. I'd also read in that same story that the average Girl Scout sells a hundred boxes. So I'm like, okay, so the average Girl Scout can sell a hundred boxes. I know that each one of these families has at least a hundred people in their network. Yeah. So 80 times a hundred. Okay. So that is 8,000 dozen, which is 96,000 cookies. Okay. 96,000 cookies. 96,000. Yeah. And it's seemed... Did I tell you that she is a force? I just want to <laughs> say that one more time. Yes. Everybody is reasonable. Okay. <laughs> to no one except for you. But yes, that's... Yeah. Go, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep. yeah I, I do realize that now. Honestly, it was such an audacious number, but I started calling friends in the industry who were professional bakers. I am by no means a professional baker and saying like, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? But it was kind of a weighted question because I was asking, can I do this? But it was Will more like, me? it was that, but also like, don't say no to me because yeah. I think I'm going to do this. But Nobody said no. They all said, look, it's just flour and sugar and, you know, like ingredients. You can do this. Sure, you can do this. So once I had enough of my friends say, yeah, you can do this, I started going about the planning process and I... <laughs> this poor friend of mine, Colleen Margoloff, who I don't know if you recently met her, but she was one who was, who was 
very happy to see you a couple of weeks ago, joined me. And she was also, her child was in, the, or her twins were in the same class as Liam and was like, sure, let's do it. And, you know, she was the perfect wingman, wing woman, because she allowed me to dream big and then was the person who was like along for the journey. Like, yeah, let's just figure this out. Yeah. So one thing led to another, which led to another. We found ourselves in this rental kitchen in Brooklyn. We're going to have to have another conversation because it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. I had a lot of people who tried to convince me not to do it. But it was at that point that I thought, well, okay, so if it fails, what, people are going to get mad at me because I was trying to do something? Yeah. You're like, why not at least try it and just see what happens? But it wound up taking off on its own where it just became this thing, almost like folklore. Mm -hmm. And the next thing you know, we had over 250 volunteers showing up and they were from all walks of life. It was like the entire food department from Bon Appetit magazine, the the entire food department for the New York Times. I didn't even know that I knew, like, who, how did they get here? Like, <laughs> like where did you People just knocking on the door, yeah, arriving. Like, literally, yeah. literally. And then the ovens broke in our rental kitchen. And so we had to find a new location in the, like, literally the middle of the night. It's December. We're in Brooklyn. I'm standing on the street like, oh, shoot, it's over. It's done. Like, what are we doing now? And somebody found a location in Manhattan and we literally were like packing up and moving our operation in the middle of the night to Manhattan to finish the project. And we wound up raising over $420,000. But the reason why we raised that much is because most people said, I don't want the cookies. Yeah. You like just, I, I just want to support what you're doing. Keep yeah. the cookies for somebody else who needs them. I just want to get involved. And that sparked this thought in my head that if you can bring people into the conversation in a way that doesn't scare them, like if I called you and said, Lydia, can I schedule some time with you tomorrow at two to talk about kids who get cancer? You might be like, you know, scary. That's, yeah. Very scary. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm available. But if I called you and said, hey, I'd really like to talk with you about good cookies. What is that? Yeah, like it can be a person, it can be a cookie, it can like it, it has could be a movement. A, right. Yeah. And so it was very intentional to create something around a thought that would bring people in and it didn't seem so scary. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You made that first donation of $426,000 to whom? To Memorial Sloan Kettering? Or? It, yeah, it, it wound up going to help develop this this treatment that was in um, in the process. It was like the next generation of an antibody therapy that my son was receiving. Got it. And so it went there. But what happened after this, like the ovens cooled and... It was, you know, like the beginning of the year because it was this was holiday season. We realized that we had hit a nerve with people and mm. come up with a, a way to bring people into the conversation. And we literally were getting calls from all over the country like, hey, I missed the cookie thing, but I heard about what you're doing. How can I get involved in my area? What mm. can I do to get involved in my area? And so that planted the seeds of, okay, there, there's legs here. There's yeah. something more to this. So we spent about the next year working on, you know, the, the stuff that you need, the business stuff that you need to do, like filing the proper paperwork to be a 501c3, waiting for the IRS approval, like creating a logo, creating a website, making sure that, you know, like all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. And we were getting ready to launch in September, which is 
fun fact, Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month, or right. as I call it, Pediatric Cancer Unawareness Month. But yeah. <laughs> you know about it because of me, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. See, you didn't exactly. know about that no, before, right? But I now know September is. Yeah. Ex- exactly. So we're getting ready to launch in September during Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month, and all of a sudden, Liam relapsed. And I had so many people come to me and say, well, you're not going to still do this, are you? Like, you, you don't have time to do this now. And I was like, are you kidding? Yeah. Now I really need to do it. Yeah. So that's what started this series of Liam relapsing, getting clean, relapsing, getting clean. Meanwhile, the organization is picking up steam and and chugging along and people are are registering to have bake sales across the country, wherever they were. And the other thing that we spent a lot of time doing is creating the process by which people got involved. When I say process, what I mean is all of our bake sales are by donation only. So if you are walking down the street in Louisiana, Mm -hmm. let's say visiting somebody (laughs) and you see a bake sale, our bake sales are not really, I would put air quotes around the word sale. Mm -hmm. It's not so much a sale, but it is a take what you want, give what you can motto, Mm -hmm. motto because if somebody is walking their dog and happens to have a dollar in their pocket and they're walking by, but they see that something is priced at two dollars, mm-hmm. they're like, "Oh, well, I, I can't you know, do it." Yeah, right. I would much prefer to get that dollar yeah. than to see that dollar walk by. Yeah. So all of our grassroots events are by donation only, and there have now been over sixteen thousand. We have granted. 20 plus million dollars. There are over 110 research grants that we have funded. We have partner centers across the country that receive our money. But what I think is really important is the way that we also give our money, which is there's a separate medical advisory board that meets in private to discuss grant requests because we always, I'm all about funding the strongest science. While I, I hate the kind of cancer that my son had the heartache that I feel having lost my son after a very long battle is the same heartache that a parent feels who lost their child to another kind of pediatric cancer. Yeah. So I'm we're like very focused on funding the strongest science versus funding only his kind of cancer. And I guess, you know what, I, I realize, and I do this all the time, like, okay, so Liam passed away. Yeah. And um, it was a four-year battle and he passed away four days after my daughter's fifth birthday. We always say that he was hanging in there to be part of her birthday celebration. And then his memorial service was on Valentine's Day. And there was over a thousand people at his memorial service. And it was just the most amazing, incredible experience ever. Out of body, I can't believe this is happening experience, but also... You know, I think one of the things that I learned early on is how amazing kids are. I don't know if we give kids enough credit. And if you really spend an inordinate amount of time, like I did with Liam, like he he just, he blew me away every day with who he was as yeah. a person. And it's funny because I only know Liam through learning about Cookies for Kids Cancer. And I think I told you the first time I got on stage, I didn't know that Liam was your son. I don't know if I've ever told you that, but I was watching the video and no one had ever said to me, Gretchen's son is Liam. I just heard about this little boy, Liam, and how he touched so many lives. Yeah. And it's something that is pervasive through any of the any of the nine events I've done. Everybody there will sit there and be like, oh, he was my child's classmate. Yeah. Oh, we just loved Liam. Oh, Liam used to visit our firehouse. I mean, I feel like yeah. I've met so many people 
that this young boy touched. And I sometimes think that having lost a very close friend recently this year, we've talked about this. It's like sometimes the magical people are the ones who come on this earth for a reason and really change other people's lives. So you're talking, I'm really holding back tears. So (laughs) I'll stop. But um, there was something that you said earlier about living these parallel lives where all of this is happening with your son and yet you're watching this incredible organization by, as we often say at your benefit, by time for families. Mm-hmm. And, oh, it does. You know, buy them those extra years that maybe there is a treatment or buy them those years that they weren't going to have if it wasn't for that. And I wonder at what point those parallel lives started to merge where you saw Liam was not going to be with you, but you saw what this life was going to be for other people. Right. Or if that took until after he was gone that you realized how much you were going to be able to help other people with what had happened in your own life. Remember, Liam was cancer-free when I decided to bake the cookies. I, in a million years, never thought that he, like, he, he was going to be fine. Yeah, right, Lydia? Course. Like, he of was going to be fine. And seven months after he passed away, that treatment that the 96,000 cookies um, went towards became available for kids and now oh. is part of regular therapy treatment that they call it therapies, but treatment that that kids receive, which is crazy when you think about it. It's just like, it's absolutely crazy. And I I think that we, at least for me personally, I think we all want to know that our lives had some kind of meaning and purpose and and made some kind of difference in this world, like something. And it 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 doesn't like it doesn't matter what it is, but you want to know that your life had purpose. Yeah. Um and I had hoped that maybe there was something I could do to honor Liam by doing whatever I could to help other kids. But you never necessarily expect that it's going to work, and especially against something as big and scary as cancer. But now we're at the stage where, and this is kind of crazy, we are meeting kids all the time who are off to college because they received not one, not two, but three kinds of treatments that we helped to fund. We're meeting kids who are... Uh, freshmen in high school who were diagnosed when they were in preschool who are planning their college future. We meet kids all the time who have benefited from treatments that we've helped to fund, which is crazy. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's just absolutely crazy. But then on the flip side, I'll always say that people are like, oh, look what you did. And I'm like, I've done nothing. I've done nothing. Well, I think that you say that humbly, but I think anyone standing across from you would say that that is not true. You have done something. (laughs) You've kept many children alive through your help and through creating this platform. But there's so, I mean- And there's much to do. And I I think, you know, that's why, honestly, I'm so honored to have you on this podcast. And I hope that anyone listening feels compelled to do something. And so I want to ask you, like, what can we do? What can someone listening right now who might also be holding back tears- (laughs) think about what they can do to help you help Cookies for Kids Cancer get to a place where cancer is not a scary word for a kid anymore. Right. Look, I hope that anybody and everybody listening decides to get involved. Whether they choose our cause or something else, I would implore, just get involved, do something. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's it's cleaning up your local playground, like just do something that is, is that will help to make 
society a, a better place. I yeah. mean, why not? Right. Yeah. Now, in terms of getting involved with us, yes, I mean, there's I'm like, so, the talk about know, cookies know, for kids, know, cancer, Gretchen, come on. <laughs> right now, we are in a $100,000 match window mm-hmm. where every dollar that is raised at grassroots events is being matched by OXO Good Grips. And when does that end? It ends at the end of the year. Okay, and so, so end of 2023, guys. Correct, correct. So you can go to our website, cookies for F-O-R, not the number four, kidscancer.org, and you can register to host your own grassroots event. And the thing is, even if you're not a baker, it doesn't matter. Like grab some pretzel rods and grab some chocolate and dip them and put some sprinkles on it and put them out at, at work, at the at the lunchroom or wherever it is where people gather and put a donation jar out. And that is a bake sale. So mm-hmm. register to have an event and every dollar raised is being matched right now. And plus this is the time or have a cookie swap. Like this yeah. is the time of year where more, more baking happens in the fourth quarter of the year. And especially November to December than any other time of the year. And then the other thing that you can do is 100% of the proceeds of our cookies that we do sell all year round go towards the mission and funding pediatric cancer research. So while I am not baking the cookies anymore. We offer uh, 12 flavors of cookies and they're really big cookies and they are delicious. And they're made by a bakery partner in Northern California and their cookies are just, just amazing. And everybody, like we're all looking for those a gift that has meaning and purpose and makes us feel good, not only about giving our money towards, but the recipient feels good about receiving. So this is a perfect time of the year to grab a few dozen cookies and send them to your friends, family, coworkers, babysitter, teachers, whoever it is who... Anybody who deserves a good cookie, who wants to be a good cookie. And I have to tell you, when I got back from the benefit, one of the amazing things, if you ever can score an invitation, and I can only say it is the most incredible event that you've ever been to in your life, Chefs for Kids, which takes place yearly, I know in Charlotte, but also in New York City. One of the sort of takeaways is a huge cookie jar just filled with cookies by different chefs. And I brought it home and I was telling the kids about the event. And my six-year-old is just starting to register these types of things, which I know was Liam's age when he passed away. And I was talking to her about that. And so the only thing she talks to me about now is when we're going to have our cookie sale. (laughs) And it's not even a joke. It's like, when are we having the cookie sale? I'm like, I don't think we can do this downstairs in New York City, but maybe maybe now I'm thinking we should. We just throw the table up and we can make some cookies and go and do it. So Seriously, you guys be... stop by. <laughs> yeah. I, I tell her I'm there to help her. Okay, great. I love it. Okay, cookie sale coming. You guys keep it on your keep it on your radar on Instagram. We will post it. Eloise will be out there. But it's also one of those things that people like, like cookies. Look at you right now. Like you're smiling because cookies make people smile. Yeah, just the true. thought of it makes people smile. So to me, it's the perfect. It's it's the opposite of what kids battling cancer, you know, like, there's nothing good about that. Yeah. But if you can do something to infuse some, Joy. Yeah, 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 then, then, and invite people to be part of the solution, then let's do it. And it's, you know, to me, it's, it's, you are the perfect person to talk about this because it's all about having the confidence to go ahead, let's try it. Yeah. I mean, I'd never had a bake sale in my life. Like, I can't tell you how many I've had at this point, but all you can do is try. All you can do is try. Well, I can't think of a better way to end it. And also, 
as Gretchen said, let's do it. So register your cookie sale, your bake sale. And I want to see Instagram blow up with more cookies for kids cancer, bake sales around the country, and also a ton of gifts being purchased in times for the holiday. Gretchen, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story. I like to always end this podcast with a question for our viewers. And I want to ask you to Gretchen's last point, what's something you are just going to try this week because of this interview? DM us, let us know what your thoughts are about something that you're a little scared to do, but you're going to try it anyway because you feel emboldened and empowered by listening to what Gretchen has done in the past two decades. I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. Gretchen, thank you so much for coming on again. Thank you. And thank you to Joe and to Rockefeller Center for Newsstand Studios. And I'll be back again next week. Until then, have a wonderful week. <laughs>